Good. Let's see what's going on. And is Alex coming? I don't know. Um. Let's see. If I hit that, there we go. All right. Um, he mentioned that he was reading and behaved like he was coming. So, let's see. When was that? Oh, he is coming. Yeah. yeah he is. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Oh, I sound. Good. Okay. Glad you're here. Yeah, everyone. Well, Znor, you were. I was getting some interesting breathing and stuff out of your mic for a second, but. Who oh, you were? Maybe you're good now. Interesting breathing. I've got a kind of janky headphones, so. Okay. Uh, got a bit of a buzz. Let's try. I don't really use Skype. No, nobody uses Skype anymore. Just us. <laughs> we should see if we could get sponsored by Skype. <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I think it's Meta. Is is Skype part of Facebook? Uh, no. Oh no 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 no. Sorry, Microsoft. It's, Skype is Microsoft. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's tricky. And so I, we have Zoom meetings at work, but we also have like WebEx, which is another company altogether. Yeah, I've used WebEx, which is you have to, uh, yeah, you have to download something extra, and then, um, and and that seems to take a lot of space when it uh, opens up. And, yeah. Well, do you guys want to chit chat, or do you want to launch into this? How do you want to handle? Blood Meridian. Alex, any ideas? Oh, he's... I think he's, uh... Oh, he's... He's fixing up his mechanism. Nice. So, okay, I think I'm back now. Excellent. Um, yeah, I didn't finish it. I'm an idiot. Um, I can't commit to anything, but I just finished up to page 237. So... Oh, well. <laughs> got where you needed to be. Pretty much. <laughs> I've been which reading it all day. Which edition is that? Uh, it's... Vintage paperback. Oh, the 25th anniversary. Uh, it's not. I think it's older than that. It's just like a. Doesn't really say. This yeah, is, mine's. This looks like first, first vintage international edition, May 1992. Yeah. Okay. What? Um, 237 in my book starts. They found the lost scouts hanging head downward. Oh. Um. They were skewered through the cords of their heels with sharpened shuttles of green wood. Uh, that's not... Yeah, that's different from mine. 
<laughs> their tongues Basically, were drawn so, out with the hell. <laughs> really, I, I actually got... I finished... Let's see, what's this? Chapter 26. So I read up through ch- 26 chapters, so I've got, like... Just the last stretch to go. But, um... Uh, I think there's only 24 six, chapters. Six, 17. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 17. Yeah. Okay. So, 16. Yeah, I finished 16. Okay, so... 15. No, that's 16. 16 starts on 233. Yep. Okay, yeah, 16. Yeah, that's. And then 17 is uh, 252. It starts on 223 for me and ends on 240, so. Oh, interesting. Okay, we, so I think Doug and I have the same edition, or the same pagination, anyways. Yeah, and I, I'm a. Mine's, I guess, a little shorter? I don't know. If the total is 340 pages. Uh, or uh, 337, I'm sorry. 337. Yeah, this one is this one is 351. Oh, nice. Yeah. Reverse 153. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Okay. I don't... But I'm still um, have you read it before, though, Alex? Or do you know what happens here? No, I don't really. I read it. I started reading it years ago when I was still in college, and uh, so this was like the first time really reading. It. And actually, the first like half of it or so, I read out loud to Eric with Erica. And, oh, uh, it'd, it'd be nice to read out loud. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fun to read. Um, and so, you know, I've read McCarthy, other McCarthys, and been well aware of it for a while. It's as good as everyone says, I'd say. You, you don't mind getting into spoilers, though? No, I don't. I don't mind. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's another one of those books. Probably all literature that it doesn't matter <laughs> if you spoil it. So no, far, it not. really doesn't. It's like the, yeah. it's the experience is the right is the reading of right. prose and stuff. you get to the end and you don't know what's happening anyways. Right? So. He's not plot driven, even though there is there's plot. There's sort of an emotional narrative with like the kid. It's like what's going to happen to this kid eventually. And, but uh, I don't think I would lose anything by getting the nuts and bolts, which I was going to do, but it just seems uh, that just seems like cheating. I don't know. Close if, notes. Oh, oh, just to uh, check in, to, like look at a summary or something. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, um, Mason and Dixon had that kind of handy summary on Wikipedia that this it one did, doesn't. Yeah, mm. that's true. Although each chapter does have the little yeah summaries, so I could probably just yeah. <laughs> get through there. Yeah, I, d- are... I have. I've certainly heard or seen the the final like paragraph essentially the whole he's dancing and dancing the judge dancing so i'm aware of that aspect of the end um but... all right anyway all right i guess we'll no do. that's fine i think yeah that's uh, that's a good way through it anyways that's just my gimmick is that i come on here having read half of the book <laughs> <laughs> you guys can fill the rest <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> 
It's Glenton's dog. No, it's 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 the uh, it's you know that one of the first times there was that Mexican troop of the Carnival Act and they had the little poodle in their hand. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's more of a yeah one of those trick dogs. I bet you Glanton's dog was pretty rugged. Oh uh, yeah. This is one of those dogs that gets thrown into the river and then sniped. There's there's Mexican dogs, there's Mexican street dogs are never that big though. Um, so could be Yeah, they're kinda like terriers. Yeah, yeah. What if we maybe, do, maybe, the English, maybe they had bigger dogs back then. What was the what was the English bulldog's name? Did he have a name? Oh, the uh in, in Mason and Dixon? Yeah. What was the the, the the something the, English dog. The, uh, the learned English dog. The learned dog. English the dog. Learned. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did end up having a name, which I forget. Yeah. yeah, he did. All right. Well, I'll read some introduction here, and and we'll we'll start into our our formal thing. Direct your first question to Znor, not me. Okay. Uh, as long as I don't have to give a summary, you, you now, do that part, Doug. <laughs> well, this, yeah, this would be a hard one. I'm going to have to go beat on the little dog. I think, um, uh, I think in general, there's so much out there on YouTube and stuff on this book. For some reason, I, it, I, I think it turned out that a huge YouTuber did this five-hour video of it a few months ago, and, and now... Tons of people are looking into it. I don't know how deeply, right? But uh, but because of that, I think we should just go full schizo sure. yes. analysis on the whole thing. All right. One second. This full schizo sync analysis is, sounds good. Yeah. 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 There's definitely some uh, some uh, probably quite a bit I think of Kubrick stuff in here. Yeah, I mean, sure. I was picturing it as a Kubrick film. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, Clockwork Orange. Speculated about that. Yeah. <laughs> I flew back from Canada just just a week ago. Uh, not even that. Uh, maybe a week ago or so. But uh, um, I watched Clockwork Orange on the plane, Air Canada. Oh, yeah. Uncensored, which was unbelievable. You know, that's, like that's on the plane. <laughs> yeah, there's no discernment whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, what was my fault for watching it, right? But uh, um, wow. But uh, but uh, yeah, I was I was amazed. Pretty, I, it is funny. I mean, I saw that movie when I was twelve or whatever, and it's just like, yeah, whatever, just rent it. <laughs> it's a really fucked up movie. And it's 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 completely uh, graphic in all ways, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, blasphemous and uh, just all sorts of you know, violence, nudity, bodies. rape, uh, whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's get to some wholesome literature. Like, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but let's get into <laughs> this wholesome literature. <laughs> You were saying something about, uh, did you say bloodsucker? Someone said. I was going to mention. He did, I think. 
I, I there was there was a bat scene where Sproul oh, yeah. Sproul was, and I felt like that was highly symbolic. Like he's rotting from the inside, and he's like a U.S. soldier. But then, like this, this vampire bat. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, guys, I just reread uh, Mark Mark's old analysis of Eyes Wide Shut, um, in which he talks about the, the basically says it's about a kind of class of of vampires that travel the earth that you know follow the sun around the globe, always hmm. westward always at night always remaining at night um and basically that's the progression of of western civilization you know westward expansion from venice Mm. to whatever to to britain to britain to america to the west coast to china so um that passage is basically the same idea of whatever you were that last passage you were saying it's like same, well, the idea same. of manifest destiny. Heliotropic plague, yeah. Right. Yes, exactly, yeah. Well, it's like godly ordained, but it wasn't. It was like, I think it was some kind of ad campaign that came up. Yeah. Well, there's a great, that great scene, which is actually, on my my copy, it's 195, which is an important number. Um because it's well it's many things but uh, anyway i don't know which one it's going to be it's about the 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 mercury laden goats or whatever that are being oh yeah shepherded yeah. down the mountain that they meet up with uh, the gang and they just 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 get thrown out and there's this passage where he's like what is it uh, the riders pushed between them and the rock and methodically rode them from the escarpment the animals dropping silently as martyrs, turning sedately in the empty air and exploding on the rocks below in start, startling bursts of blood and silver. As the flasks broke open and the mercury loomed wobbling in the air in great sheets and lobes and small trembling satellites and all its forms grouping below and racing in the stone arroyos like the embreachment of some ultimate alchemic work decocted out, decocted from out the secret dark of the earth's heart the fleeing stag of the ancients fugitive on the mountainside and bright and quick in the dry path of the storm channels and shaping out the sockets in the rock and hurrying from ledge to ledge down the slope, shimmering and deft as eels. Like, wow, that's a lot of mercury in it. Yeah. Yeah. And all the way through, there's this kind of alchemical imagery and metaphors, like similes about alchemy. So, but what about so this is the thing? This is a kind of bleak book, right? No, really. (laughs) You think so? (laughs) I'm talking about like Cormac McCarthy's. There is no meaning, but meaning itself, right? So, like, there is no, there is no synchronicity. So, I'm thinking of uh, Anton Chigurh in. no country for old men where mm-hmm. fate becomes really the the coin flip mm-hmm. you know there is no meaning you know like you're going to die now and that universe <laughs> is just so bleak and so it's it's like when i when i got so 
deeply ingrained in this, it kind of it wasn't doing any. It's like maybe there isn't any synchronicity. Maybe this is all in our heads. You know, maybe <laughs> it's it's just chaos. The universe is chaos, and what we have is a is a happy accident. Well, I ex, ex, go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Um. Well, I was going to say that the the measure of hope that you might draw from it, I guess, is that we are not living in this book <laughs> or in this time or in this place, that this is something in the past, in our past, This and it's sort of representative of the base, what Kubrick called the ignoble savage of man, but that we've sort of beaten it back and beaten it back and and uh, and have have kind of put together this a society that actually can can exist without just pure uh, rapaciousness um, so yeah it, it, yeah the only the only thing though this uh, to me this is the most startling thing is that uh, um, isn't isn't the judge involved also in the beating of beating it back you know like that's his whole yes, he purpose is. is to beat back the wilderness right like uh um so so in a way that if if we have tamed the wilderness in the civilization now it's like we now live in the judge's world right and oh, yeah. and the fact that it's not rapacious means that it's the, well, it, it still is, you know, it still is obviously. Sure, but, of course, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, uh, but the judge is on top, like the judge is in everything. It's in the structure of our civilization almost, you know, it's like, in, oh, and. Yeah. Uh, he's still dancing. He's still, yeah. He, so here's, here's okay, listen to this one. It, Alex, you might not have come across this because this is towards the end. And he meets up, this is where, um, the judge and the idiot, which we should talk about him too. Um, they meet up yeah. with Tobin and Toadvine and the kid at the well in the in the middle of the desert, right? And so yeah. and so the judge arrives and he's, he's got meat hanging from him to dry, and he's got this weird thing on its on his head to keep his head from burning off. And but he comes up to them. It's it's like a water hole basically. And so it says the judge smiled. Quite so, he said. But, okay, the, the priest said, I'm no priest and I've I've no counsel, said Tobin. The lad is a free agent. The judge smiled quite so, he said. He looked at Toadvine and smiled up to the ex-priest again. What then, he said, are we to drink at these holes, turn about like rival bands of apes? <laughs> so what is that? You know, like... Yeah. <laughs> this is 2001. <laughs> but... It's interesting because like that's, that's a that's a dead on reference to two thousand and one. Like why it's, why yeah. did they become out. so antagonized after they lost the uh, the ferry essentially? So Glanton was killed by the Yuma Indians, right? Yeah. And then they're all fleeing, kind of onesie twosies, and they kind of come together. And it was after that that the kid is like done with the judge. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, uh, yeah, that's a question too. I had is like, what happens there that uh, 
yeah, that they became like before that you you don't have any sort of inkling. They have disagreements, but they're not enemies at that point, you know. But they're they are they do become enemies at this at this well, you know. It's like well, uh, you get the impression that Tobin isn't necessarily on the level with the judge, you know. Like they're, uh, yeah, I think it, they even spar a little bit about the idea of God. But 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 he, but he um. Uh, the judge never says that Tobin is the one who goes against the the collective, right? Because I think there's another part in the in the story where, um, yeah, the judge is talking to Tobin about God, and the judge basically corners Tobin and says that morality, like Christian morality or higher morality, is a way for weak people to have an up against stronger people, and so basically it's another. It's another strategy in the game, right? And that's what Nietzsche said all along too, right? Is that it's it's all in bad faith. Good, like morality is is in bad faith because it's pretending to be higher values, but it's not really. It's just it's just a tool to get to if you're a weaker person to to rise up against the stronger, right? So, and and I think the judge corners Tobin on that point and so dismisses him. No longer is he a threat anymore because the judge realizes that he's on the same that Tobin is on the same page as the judge. They're 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 both looking out for the will to power, but just using different strategies. But it's the kid who falls out of it somehow. You know, the kid the kid is somehow different, right? And then that's why the kid is the principal um, enemy of the judge, right? It's kind of a Danny Torrance, Apollo, perhaps, sort of archetype, rebel, uh, rebellious child. Hmm. Interesting you should mention The Shining, because I, as I was reading this book, I felt like it was doing similar things that The Shining was doing in terms of its look at, like, uh, American westward expansion. And, right. you know, like, what what our houses are built upon kind of, sure. you know, like what is, you know, how, how do you get an overlook hotel? Well, there's multiple rivers of blood in this, in this book. Yeah. The cascading and that's even, the blood meridian. The, that's the reddening of the West. But even that part about where they go, where they're at the ruins of the Anasazi yeah. people. And yeah. the judge talks about that they're gone like phantoms, and then the, and the, and now the the present savages, the present natives, now crouch in their huts and listen to fear seeping from rock. Um, and then rock. he talks about he talks about an interesting point of of uh, those who build in stone, uh, those who build their huts yeah. um, just with mud or grass or whatever. They want to join they join their spirit to the common destiny of of all creatures on earth but those who build in stone seek to alter the structure of the universe right they're trying to be gods and and the judge is trying to do that too like like by putting like he's he's sketching in his book all these rock um paintings these anasazi rock paintings and then once he's got them in his book he scratches them out of the rock wall so they don't exist anymore. Yeah. And so he's, he's got the only copy. Um, right. Which seemed like evil. Like. <laughs> well, it's and it it gave me vibes of the recognitions, right? Like because it's all about um, 
counterfeit and representations, right? Like it's all about uh, how there's, um, what is the difference between a, a, a true counterfeit and the original, you know? Um, but if you have, if you have a true counterfeit and there is no original, then you possess the original, then it's yours and you control it, right? Um. So the judge owns, he owns his world. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The he, bird, he, he the wants to, and he burns wants, an insult to me. Yeah. <laughs> he wants them all in zoos. He won them, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but he also says there was a there's an earlier point about um where the kid is talking to Tobin and the yeah he says the kid asks what's he a judge of yeah yeah and then and then there's no answer the the uh, Tobin doesn't give an answer which it's another clue that uh, Tobin's still in the same ultimately he's still in the same viewpoint as a judge he doesn't separate from it but then then the answer comes way later. Um, when the kid is having his ether dreams and the judge visits him, right? And in the dream, the judge comes to him, the great shambling mutant, silent and serene, comes to him. And he, he no longer has the idiot with him, but he has this counterfeiter, right? And so the counterfeiter is creating this currency, right? And it's the judges, and it says the judges... Uh, I should read it, but it says that it's the judge's um, role is to judge the representations of of his counterfeiting, and so then, so then all the way through, we know we know what the judge is doing. He's he, the purpose is to judge counterfeits, to judge true counterfeits, right? Like, uh, so it says like. Uh, it is this false moneyer with his gravers and burns who seeks favor with the judge, and he is, and he is at contriving from cold slag brute in the crucible a face that will pass, an image that will render this res, residual specie or money current in the markets where men barter. Of this is the judge judge, and the night does not end. And this expression, the night does not end, it comes up again and again, especially at the end, right? But at that time, at the end, he's judging, uh, he's judging warriors and dancers, and he says there's there's a false there's a false war and a false dance, and so the judge, what is he the judge of? He's the judge of the false dance, right? The false war, you know. Mm-hmm. Basically, the, the the false reality. There's all these there's all these parallels. That's, uh, yeah, demiurge. So, yeah. I think, in in his. Cormac McCarthy's most recent book, The Passenger, it really has a Gnostic flavor to it where the schizophrenic character can see through this reality and see the demiurge itself, like through a gateway. Mm-hmm. But it's I'm I'm struggling with McCarthy's worldview. I just don't know if it's the worldview that I want to be in. I don't know either. Like in a sense, the judge's book is this book, you know, and so and so McCarthy's doing the same thing. Like there's a line, um, whatever I forget where that is, but he's saying that the, uh, um, uh, what is it? The past, the past that is, and the past that we imagine is, is basically the same thing because we have poor memory. So, so it's not it. 
there's no objective history. Like history is whoever records it. It's the same way that we, like we said before, like we uh, we define order by taking out of this tapestry of chaos, right? So um, the judge by creating this book is creating the true order, the true like uh, taxonomy of everything, right? But but McCarthy's doing that too. Like he's using these historical sources, like like Chamberlain, but then he he's creating his own thing, you know, and his own book becomes more true than the actual history. Um, so I think I, he's, he, McCarthy's taking on the role of, of the demiurge, you know, like maybe ironically, I don't know, but, uh, but he's, he's definitely taking on that role. It seems. I was going to say that, uh, the judge's book and his etchings and stuff seems to be the embodiment of the phrase history is, written by the winners or whatever yeah you know history and he you know he went it's like he crushes he he finds a bird and he kills it and he stuffs it and he says i win and on and on and on um yeah that's and and like the kid is the last autonomous thing or the last autonomous autonomous individual that he has to somehow get into his book you know Uh, mm -hmm. Which is like, um, uh, yeah, which goes to the ending. Like, what I, what actually happens at the end? Does he succeed in that? He he dances as if he succeeds, but but how does but he you, succeed? There's you get a, the impression the dance goes on forever, but you're right. So did he win, and that's why he's dancing? Where he? It seems like it's a victory s- dance. Right? Subsumed the kid into his. enigma and he he says it's not an enigma it's not a mystery the mystery is that there is no mystery right right um but then uh but then there's a the bigger question like at the the final dance that he says he says i do not sleep and i will not die yeah but Mm -hmm. if he will i was thinking about that if he if he if he knows that he will not die yeah then how is he how is he fairly playing the game? Because in the game, which is war, the ultimate game is war. Oh, and you're playing for your life. You're playing like the, for your life, right? And so if right. he knows that he he cannot die, yeah, he will not die, is he playing fairly, right? But is he war? So, like, he mentions that God is war at some point. Yeah, God is war, yeah. But the, the reason God is war is because... Uh, War is the ultimate divination, right? Like if you're in a duel, um, you stake your life against the life of another, right? And then God decides which will win, which will which will be killed, and and which will be victorious, right? And so it's then it enters to the higher will of God. So 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 you sort of um, you sort of force God to make a decision at that point. If you if you give up your own life, um, if you put your own life as as a stake in the in the game, right? Um, so 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 then yeah. So then he also says like, uh, war is the ultimate divination, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the testing of one will and the will of another within the larger will, which. Because it binds them, is therefore forced to select. War is the ultimate game because war is the last, is at last a forcing of the unity of existence. Right, right. War so that's, is God. 
so that's the thing. Like if, if there's a higher will involved, right? Like he's not he's not entirely Nietzschean either, right? Um, which is what some people say. Like it, 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 there is a huge parallel with it. You read like Zarathustra and stuff, who who is also talking about the glory of war and so on, right? And and about the progression from from camel and lion to child. But Did you Nietzsche, see? <laughs> Nietzsche only accepts the war, the will of the individual. He doesn't accept a higher will. So Elon was going to fight Zuckerberg, and he tweeted out like somebody said, "Why why do you want to fight Zuckerberg?" You know, because he was talking about, is this just a way to get in shape? And he says, men love war. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the the minimum stakes, the judge says, is the pride of victory and the humiliation of defeat. Like, even at any sort of game, you know, you could play a a game of cards with your kids or whatever. Um, There's an element of uh, that. That's the the uh, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Yeah, yeah, same, same idea basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. That's what sports are all about. Um, but but yeah, so so the judge's idea is like, okay, go deeper into that and make the stakes mm-hmm. as high as possible. And, and yeah. the highest stake, of course, is your, is your own life. You can't give any more than that. You know. Yeah. There's a more alchemic alchemy when, you know, in the story of how they he saves his the gang, and uh, through you know they make gunpowder, but it's that whole scene where he's the piss and they're all pissing and he's the Indians are coming up after them, and he's uh, mixing it all with his hands and uh, I mean that's straight out of alchemical. Uh, you know, literature. Yeah. Um, saved by the, the, you know, he created the stone, the philosopher's stone, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who knows if it was and, even gunpowder? Yeah. Oh, that's 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 great. Like he creates the philosopher's stone, and instead of it being used to save people, to bring people to life, it it ends up killing people. You know, like a right. Well, saving themselves essentially, and yeah, a massacre. But it's yeah, that's it's perfect also because in um, uh, in gunpowder you have sulfur and then saltpeter, so you have the sulfur and the salt, and I guess the piss would be the mercury, right? Right. Mm. Sounds about right. So to keep you abreast of what was happening, Alex, um, if if the kid is sixteen when the, most of the book takes place, toward the end. It skips forward like 29 years. And so that was the section that I read where we went from like 1950 to uh, 1870. Right. Which skips skips over the Civil War. Right. He's 45. And basically we're at the end of the apocalypse. So like, you know, that scene just was so striking to me where it's the end of the buffalo where they killed them all. And okay, so this is a great thing to add too. Is that um, so? Yeah, so he meets the judge finally in that in that bar in the north of Texas, and and then the well, we can get into this one too. It's such a huge thing, this whole scene. But 
he ends up sleeping with a prostitute and then he goes out to the outhouse. Before he goes to the outhouse, he looks up in the sky and it's a, sh- and it's a meteor shower. Mm. The, the exact same as it was at the beginning of the book. Right. right. Yeah. And the, and the beginning of the book. Okay. This is where Alex comes in too. This is, uh, it might blow your mind, Alex, but the, um, so he was born in, uh, 1833 the kid is born in 1833 in in the uh on the night of this leonid um meteor storm right it was the biggest Mm -hmm. meteor shower recorded in history and and there were reports of like a thousand meteors falling an hour every hour right Uh and the peak of it the peak of this was uh november 12th november 13th right Uh but this thing this thing occurs every 33 years, right? So the next one would be 1866, and that, that storm was not, as, was not as massive, right? The one in 33 was... But it's every 33 years. And the peak is always around November, uh, November 16, November 17th, right? Really? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, is it still, does it still happen? It still happens. It happens every every thirty three years. Like it happens every year. It, every year it happens. Right. But the big, the massive storms are every thirty three years, right? So it it would have been happening when you were born, you know, to to an extent, you know. Right. Well, I want to find when the next one's coming up. It'll probably be on my forty second birthday or something. <laughs> yeah. It, so it's um. Uh, so I thought that was amazing. And then and then at the end. It's it's no longer it's not in November. It's described as uh, late um, winter, so it must be like March or something, maybe February, March, and it's in 1878. And I I tried to look this up and find out if there's any amazing meteor showers that happened at that time. I couldn't find anything, but but just the fact that that's the night he apparently dies, right? So the night that he he was born, there's a meteor storm. Like uh, almost apocalyptic meteor storm, and then the night he dies, there's this meteor shower as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's the whole book is like bookended by these meteor showers, in the same way as Mason and Dixon. It's it's bookended by the transit of Venus. You know, it's like so oh I thought, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was kind of a mind blower. You know that whole thing. Um, yeah. Huh. So I, I don't know what it means. Like the fact that he was born um, during this apocalyptic meteor storm. Like uh, Native Native American tribes were all saying that it may have indicate indicates the end of the world. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. then, and then then the kid is born here. And and McCarthy himself was born uh, 1933, which would all also be one of these storms like it's it's this 33 year interval right right well he he does something interesting so like the next book that he writes so this was 1985 and the interesting thing for me was that white noise came out the same same time Hmm. and so i i read that one this summer too just because i i was i was in that 1985 moment but his next book was his really big one where he became popular um, it was All the Pretty Horses in 1992. Mm-hmm. And, um, man, I think I – so I was reading a lot of McCarthy back then for some reason. So I was like reading David Foster Wallace and Cormac McCarthy. And I think I read the whole Border Trilogy 
but it's set in 1949, 100 years later, and it also the main protagonist is a 16-year-old kid. Hmm. And they go to kind of the same places. You know, this is all the pretty horses you're saying? Yeah. In the in the in the border trilogy also? Yeah. Was it Yeah. Yeah, so but then Harold Bloom thinks all the pretty horses is good, but the other two are not as good. Yeah, so and, and apparently McCarthy also traveled from the east to Texas around the same time, right? Yeah, apparently like he lives so, where so he, he writes about. So he was born in 33 and then I don't know if it was the same time like he arrived there when he was 16 as well or something. I'm not sure, but uh, I I bet you not, but I bet you he traveled once he started writing about Texas and then lived there. Right. It'd be he, interesting yeah. to know his process like as far as July 20th, 33, which is the day of the Apollo 11 moon landing. So he would have been 36 on the day that happened. Um, hmm. so yeah, he, I mean, he, he kind of, after this one, uh, settled into kind of a, I don't know, a more gentle style. My memory of the Border Trilogy is that it's it's also pretty brutal, but I don't think it's nearly as brutal as this. Yeah, well, I mean, I read No Country for Old Men before I saw the movie, and that's one of the most, like, cinematic books. Like, you read through it in a, in a day, and it's just blistering and kind of disturbing. Um, and I was always kind of disappointed by the movie. I like the book more. Um, but this is just his most intense, and the prose is just another level. Oh yeah, yeah. Some of the sentences, I, I, I just reading them, and I have to. I, I did have to read them out loud, and it was just like I was like a, like a, like a mind, mini mind orgasm. Sometimes those sentences, you know, it's just like whoa. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I had to sigh after them, you know, like yeah. It's biblical. Um, yeah, biblical old, like I say, Old Testament, um, but kind of modernized. What about like his lack of quotes? So he's not using quotation marks. And yeah, this is this is apparently his Joycean influence, right? Because mm-hmm. same thing in Ulysses. Like um, Joyce starts that um, halfway through or three quarters of the way through uh, Portrait of the Artist as a as a young man. He drops the quotes, and then from there on in in his writing, there's no more quotes. Um, so I, 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 that's an interesting point. I don't know why Joyce ends up dropping the quotes like that. Um, but but then uh, McCarthy carries on that kind of tradition. Um, I like how Wallace comes in and uses single quotes. Uh, yeah. Instead. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, McCarthy has this whole uh, war on punctuation or something, right? Yeah, like a, yeah, he does. This massive, like these, uh, like massive sentences with conjunctions instead of punctuation yeah. really yeah a polysyndeton as wikipedia uh which is a deliberate insertion of conjunctions into a sentence for the purpose mm. of slowing up the rhythm of the prose 
Mm. So that's a really $10 word for long sentence. Um, so he also uses a lot of similes. Right. I, I think I recognize, so like it took me a while to become accustomed to the prose. Like I was, I was thinking about it a lot. It was, it, I, how would I say that? It's like, it was almost a little bit annoying until I got used to it. And then I could uh, recognize its beauty. But it did seem kind of highfalutin at first, you know, it's like, who is this guy? <laughs> um, well, he, he, the other Joycean influence is the kind of compound words. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, like even, even that quote I just read, like vicious looking, vicious looking is all one word. One word, yeah. right. Yeah, vicious that's... looking humans. Uh, he, he's, yeah, stuff like pack animal, he, he, will, he will just put uh, just as one word. Yeah. But yeah, people also talk about his um, like his borrowing from the Iliad, like that. In in my copy of the book, it's right at the back, like the back blurb. Like somebody mm -hmm. somebody's comparing it with the Iliad, the Infernal, the Iliad, and Moby Dick, right? So, right. Um, but uh, but it's true. Like you read the Iliad, and it's just there's all these similes like that all the way through, and then there's and then there's just brutal violence, you know, like a. So, so he's like, he's from the Iliad, like uh, the bronze cuirass that he was wearing served him ill. The spear point landed in the mil middle of his belly and he fell to earth with a crash. Um, oh, I was going to try to find some gruesome parts. <laughs> oh. Yeah, uh, he hit wrong. him with a, he hit him with a spear on the throat under the chin and the point went right through. Asius fell like an oak or a poplar or a towering pine. That woodmen cut down in the mountains with wetted axe to make timbers for a ship. Yeah, there's a there's a simile. So Asius lay stretched in front of his chariot and horses, groaning and clutching at the blood-stained dust. His charioteer, losing such wits as he possessed, had not even the presence of mind to turn his horse around and slip out the enemy's hand, but was caught by a spear from the cool-headed Antilochus, which struck him in the middle. Um, this, this is a prose translation of the Iliad, but but it's like uh, yeah, see, those two elements, just graphic violence and um, and then and then similes, like strange, elaborate similes. Here's some violence. Uh, um, where do I want to start here? Yeah, the company was now come to a halt, and the first shots were fired, and the gray rifle smoke rolled through the dust as the lancers breached their ranks. The kid's horse sank beneath him with a long pneumatic sigh. He had already fired his rifle, and now he sat on the ground and fumbled with his shot pouch. A man near him sat with an arrow hanging out of his neck. He was bent slightly, as if in prayer. The kid would have reached for the bloody hoop-iron point, but then he saw that the man wore another arrow in his breast to the fletching, and he was dead. Everywhere there were horses down and men scrambling, and he saw a man who saw, sat charging his rifle while blood ran from his ears, and he saw men with their revolvers disassembled trying to fit the spare loaded cylinders they carried, and he saw men kneeling who tilted and clasped their shadows on the ground, and he saw men lanced and caught up by the hair and scalps standing, and he saw the horses of war trample down the fallen. Did you just read this? 
No, I didn't. Okay, sorry. And a little white-faced pony with one clouded eye leaned out of the murk and snapped at him like a dog and was gone. Um, <laughs> that yeah. There's so, more here. Sorry, I, I'm just going to skip forward. Um, this is just like this one long, huge, violent sentence, so I'm just going to keep going. Among the wounded, some seemed dumb and without understanding, and some were pale through the masks of dust and some had fouled themselves or tottered brokenly onto the spears of the savages. Now driving in a wild frieze of headlong horses with eyes walled and teeth cropped and naked riders with clusters of arrows clenched in their jaws and their shields winking in the dust, and up the far side of the ruined ranks in a piping of bone flutes and dropping down off the sides of their mounts with one heel hung in the wither's strap and their short bows flexing beneath the outstretched necks of the ponies, until they had circled the company and cut their ranks in two and then rising up again like funhouse figures, some with nightmare faces painted on their breasts, riding down the unhorsed Saxons and spearing and clubbing them and leaping from their mounts with knives and running about on the ground with a peculiar bandy-legged trot like creatures driven to alien forms of locomotion and stripping the clothes from the dead and seizing them up by the hair and passing their blades about the skulls of the living and the dead alike snatching aloft the bloody wigs and hacking and chopping at the naked bodies, ripping off limbs, heads, gutting the strange white torsos, and holding up great handfuls of viscera, genitals, some of the savages so slathered up with gore they might have rolled in it like dogs, and some who fell upon the dying and sodomized them with loud cries to their fellows. And now the horses of the dead came pounding out of the smoke, and dust encircled with flapping leather and wild manes and eyes whited with fear like the eyes of the blind, and some were feathered with arrows, and some lanced through and stumbling and vomiting blood as they wheeled across the killing ground and clattered from sight again. Dust stanched the wet and naked heads of the scalp, who with the fringe of hair below their wounds and tonsured to the bone, now lay like maimed and naked monks in the blood-slaked dust, and everywhere the dying groaned and gibbered, and horses lay screaming. Yeah, that that passage was was the one that um, just completely sucked me into the book. After that, I was like, "Fuck, this is <laughs> yeah. genius level." You know, it's like it just, but but horrific and like uh, like yeah, carnival esque. You know, it's like just just. It, it's, it reads like Burroughs, that passage, almost. Well, you know, I was like, kind of reminded of Don Quixote a little bit, though. So yeah, that, yeah. that's the Comanche. Comanche, yeah. And they're the ones who kind of put... They made the Manifest Destiny difficult. They were the thing that was in the way for a long time. I think they uh, maybe set the pace back like... Um, like 50 years or something crazy where, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, there was just, they owned that part of the world and there was just no getting, like they were and, so good at riding and, horses and, and killing. And so brutal too, right? right. Like the, it, it's, it's, it's accurate and realistic with this passage. Like at first I was wondering, you know, what, what are these weird costumes and stuff that they're wearing? Like, and, but then I realized, yeah, these are all trophies that they got from, from, previous attacks you know wearing wedding dresses and top hats like whatever they could find you know like just uh but it but the end the other interesting thing about that passage is that it doesn't mention in the chapter that they are comanche except in the synopsis at the uh at the 
the start of the chapter, right? Mm. It doesn't call them Comanche. So, so then I started paying attention to the synopses. Yeah. And you actually find out information from them that you don't find in the chapters. There's, there's little clues um, in them, you know, like they're not just like, a, they're not just redundant little blurbs. You, there's actually new information that you get from them. Right. But yeah, but that yeah, but that that um uh, yeah that scene is just incredible though. It's like it, yeah, it's it's like something from uh, Mad Max or something, you know, like a. Uh huh. Well, so do you think like <laughs> what would a movie of, of this actually look like? Would people <laughs> be able to stomach it, or like I don't know. If you could do this justice, well, there's a movie called Bone Tomahawk, um, which is a western, and it's got like one scene where anybody who sees the movie will be able to say, "Oh yeah, that scene," and it's just like a scene of just incredibly brutal, ridiculous violence. But this book would be kind of, pretty much every scene would be <laughs> would be that. So I don't know. Um, I think the fact that so many people have tried and it still hasn't happened is definitely just illustrative of how difficult that would be. So, so Doug, you're saying now there's a definite plan to make it into a movie, or it's that's what it's it seems the, like. So they made it's in the process, or yeah, I don't know how early the process is, but the same guy who did his movie, The Road. And it's interesting because oh. I haven't read that or watched that movie, and so it's a good movie. I haven't read the book, but that's a good book too. That was when he became really famous. Yeah, like Oprah level. Well, I guess yeah. he was that before, but I mean, but no, it really like he did Oprah interviews. Yeah, he was everywhere. That's how I first heard of him, actually. Yeah. Like my mom had the road. So, much, so that's like. So it's, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that scene, especially the Comanche scene, there's like parallels to that in at least the movie of the road. Like there's just these bizarre, savage groups attacking people. And and yeah, it's 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 supposed to be post-apocalyptic, right? Um, Whereas this this is historical, which means yeah, what does that say about the apocalypse, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> hasn't it already happened? Exactly. You know, isn't it happening? Right? It's ongoing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There's um. There's all all kinds of different places we could go into here, like uh, like just trying to figure out the judge. Um. Like this, okay. Here's here's one strange thing. Okay, uh, so the judge is talking about um, uh, putting everything into his book again, right? And so he replies to somebody and says, uh, "The judge smiles. Whether in my book or not, every man is tabernacled in every other, and he in exchange, and so on, in an endless complexity of being and witness to the uttermost edge of the world, like that." That is Schopenhauer, you know. It's it's almost like uh, Indra's net, 
in in Buddhism, you know, like this idea that uh, every, like I have a, in my mind, I have a copy of both of you, like, and, <laughs> and in your minds, you have a copy of me and the other person, you know, and, so, and it's all this like endless interweaving of everything, you know, um, and it's ta- this this verb tabernacled, which is amazing, like, um, because the, the original tabernacle was the temporary housing of the Ark of the Covenant, like just basically a tent in the desert before the before the temple was built, like the before the permanent temple was built. Mm-hmm. So so it's it's as if every man exists as 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 the most sacred thing, right, in, in another person's mind, you know, tabernacled in your mind. Like that's a, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and I've there's a movie recently called 3000 Years of Longing um, which is about a jinn and uh, the jinn comes into the modern world and he's watching television and there's like a documentary and it's got Einstein on there and he like he plucks Einstein out of the TV and and he's holding him in his hand and suddenly there's Einstein and he's like conscious he's just he's Einstein he's like what am I doing here how did I what's going on and, they're like, yeah, put him back, put him back. But just this whole idea that, like, yeah, within the fragment, within the captured light, you know, representative of the person is like the whole person can be recreated. And so that's sort of, yeah, judgy and, uh, I think, idea. Yeah, especially in a universe where everything is possible. Like, it is a, it is a, it is a carnival, you know. Well, so at the end, there was the bear. And that was really, you know, so like there's the dancing bear on stage, right? Yeah, I wanted to get to the bear. Oh, man. And some guy shot the bear. And all yeah. the carnival people were like heartbroken. Oh, no. Because the bear was dead. Like there was some uh, young girl in a barrel organ or something. Yep. And she goes missing at the end, too. Yeah, of course she does. Um, but And then... And- Oh, yeah, go on. Well, I, I want to say that there's there are other instances of this kind of, like, what the hell? You know, like, carnival-type moments. Like, I'm not going to be able to think of any. Go ahead. <laughs> well, well uh, okay, but just on that, that bear thing. Like, I know, Alex, you have a lot to say about bears. <laughs> oh. <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but, um... Uh, Who doesn't? So... <laughs> yeah, so, but this is um, uh, this is, is so that quote that you read, Doug, after about, about this is an orchestration for an event, you know, for yeah. a dance. In fact, the participants will be appraised apprised of their roles in the proper time. For now, it is enough that they have arrived, as the dance is the thing with which we are concerned and contains complete within itself its own arrangement and history and finale. There is no, necess- no necessity that the dancers contain these things within themselves as well. In an event, the history of all is not the history of each, nor indeed the sum of those histories, and none here can fully comprehend the reason for his presence, for he has no way of knowing even in what the event consists. Um, and then he says, the event is a ceremony, the orchestration thereof, the overture carries certain marks of decisiveness. It includes the slaying of a large bear. And then he goes on, um, 
what is the ceremony? It says, uh, this is a ceremony of a certain magnitude, perhaps more commonly called a ritual. A ritual includes the letting of blood. Rituals which fail in this requirement are but mock rituals. Oh. Here, every man knows the false at once. Never doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, and, oh, this is amazing part. And he says like that, um, that feeling in the breast, like how, how you know something is a mock ritual is the same as that feeling in the breast that evokes a child's memory of loneliness, such as when the others have gone and only the game is left with its solitary participant, a solitary game without opponent. Yeah. So, so. A false ritual is like a false game where all your opponents leave and you're left alone with no opponents and no way to complete the game, you know. Um, and 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 the reason why a ritual is false is because there's no bloodletting. And and then the bloodletting is the bloodletting of a bear, which is like there's right. the bear there's the bear on the very first page. Um, he said, like, uh, um, his father's talking, night of your birth, 33, the lilies, oh, yeah. they were called, God, how the stars felt, I looked for blackness, holes in the heaven, the dipper stove, and the dipper's the great bear, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then and then there's this bear all the way through, like, the, the bear carries off one of the, one of the Delaware uh, yeah, Indians. Yeah, they track him, or they start tracking yeah. Oh, and that feels like a Mason-Dixon part. Yeah. There's a couple other instances of the bear through it, you know. So I, I, I don't know. What, like, yeah, what is Alex? What is the bear? <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, but th there's Kubrick and the bear, and I think that he's tapping into that in, in, in a way. Yeah, I mean, well. The Shining. I would say like that's where that the whole bear thing really comes into focus and. This came out right after The Shining. Yeah. Right. But, um, you know, the bit, Sean has the whole subliminal bear theory, and that, but that kind of goes towards the, like, the Big Dipper, you know, like, and that the, that's the, that's the primary constellation, uh, is the great bear. And so it's, bears have invaded, they're in our language, like, our, you know, to get one's bearings, and you bear a burden. And a bur a burden is a bear den. Mm. The er syllable comes from ursa, er, mm. which is the Latin for bear. The bear. So yeah. When the way you look when you look at it like that, you can see there's tons of crazy stuff about that. Um, so at the end of the movie Midsummer, um, which is all about a, a ritual sacrifice, right. you know the guy the guy is. Uh, drugged and stuffed inside a dead bear carcass and then burned wicker man style so and, yeah and joseph, joseph campbell says that's the earliest religion is bear is, is bear worship like in really in his book on, yeah in his book on primitive mythology he talks about that oh, like I'd it goes it goes that. way back to paleolithic like cave bear um, all right rituals right um, and there's only there's like very few there's only eight species um, so eight is a very charged number, but kind of what, what? What do you mean, eight species? Yeah, there's only eight species of bear. Like, oh, okay, okay. Um, in the world, um, those are the like the I don't know which how far. Anyway, yeah. So um, the and so 
<clears throat> if you remember the shining the line where they're talking about cannibalism and uh you mean they ate each other up and puts that emphasis on eight eight hmm. and so that letter and then tarantino plays on that when he makes the hateful eight which is like uh you know about eight people in a in in a confined space hmm. basically tearing each other apart well. and uh I always wondered if that had really, and then because there's also the Chicago Eight, which is a whole different thing. But like, they were the the Democratic National Convention in 1968. You know that that went south, and then they eventually tried certain people, these people, Abby Hoffman, and all these other guys. There were eight of them, and they were famously known as the Chicago Eight. But then the Chicago Chicago's football team is the Bears. So, well, also also there's usually depicted at at least like eight points on the compass right and then and then the bear points to the north mm. like the true mm-hmm. north through mm-hmm. polaris right so yeah um, uh, and the, i believe it's in eyes wide shut when he comes down that the first shot at ziggler's ball there's a eight pointed star mm. very clear bright and and that 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 with arrows on it is also the symbol for chaos right the the uh the eight-point compass with arrows sticking all in all directions is chaos. Right. And uh, the other, one more thing is that, um, shit, what did I just have? I just had it in my head. Oh, yeah, there, the, the number of constellations, there's 88, right? Yeah. 8-8, eight, eight, which is also the number on the keys. Of piano, the piano, piano keys. Yeah. Eight, eight. So. Well, there also, so, so getting back to this idea of, of the three metamorphoses in in Nietzsche, right? So it goes from camel to lion to the child, right? And the child is the Superman, the Star Child, right? But but uh, but in the meteor shower is the Leonids, right? And so you've got this combination of the Leonids from Leo, uh, which is the lion, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then the bear. So I, I thought in in this story. It's not the camel. Like the camel gets replaced by by the horses, right? Because the horses, um, there's no in the desert that they're going through, and it, it's the same desert that Nietzsche talks about—the desert of nihilism or whatever, the desert of of meaninglessness. Um, to get through the desert, you need a pack animal. The pack animal becomes a horse, and then and then the transformation of the horse goes to the bear instead of the lion, because you don't have a lion in that desert either so the bear replaces the lion so the sacrifice of the bear at the end the final ritual is 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 the transformation from the from the the lion or the bear to the child right the final transformation um and you bear children right yeah yeah that's great too um so so i i don't know if but it, but he mentions that too like the judge talks about um his idea of of child rearing and he says that uh, each child should yeah. be placed in a pit and and there's three doors in front of them and only one door doesn't have a lion on in, in it right and so there's the connection of child and lion also right and so but Kubrick was a Leo um, well. and but he's also a bear they, they kind of associate he's associated with that for some reason um, you know, lions and tigers and bears. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's a it's a great 
kind of substitute and, and same camel and horse I think works as well and the desert is there and the, and then the child is there still um, Those are but then moved. Moved, man. yeah but then if you if if you take that on board you know then then again it's this is the mind blower is that um, is the judge the star child you know that's what it <laughs> Like thus spake Zarathustra, right? Like he's, <laughs> he, he, and if he's the star child, like what does that mean for for everything? You know, like uh, it's a <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's like when you when you do Mark Sink of uh, Pink Floyd with the 2001. Uh, you know the album Dark Side of the Moon? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. The part where there's like a tremendous explosion. It's like. When you sync it, and it plays three times, and then it starts over one last time, and the the Star Child appearance, the whole climax of the music is set to that huge explosion, where it's just like, and you really get the sense that like the Star Child signifies the the apocalypse. 